Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited, where we will cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation, so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Alexius Arctos for his amazing sound engineering and editing work, and Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Today I'd like to welcome Jeff Keane back to the podcast to discuss K.M. Wurstein's theory about the Eternal Warrior. I may have called her theory the Eternal Soldier during my interview with Jeff, but if I do, please forgive me, K.M. calls her theory the Eternal Warrior. On researching people with memories of past military lives, K.M. had noticed a tendency in some people to have multiple military lives, almost as if being a soldier is a calling. Jeff Keane is the definition of an eternal warrior, as he remembers many past military lives, some in other countries that we'll discuss as we go on with this. As you know, Jeff's most well-remembered life is as John B. Gordon, a Confederate general in the American Civil War. He wrote a book about his experiences called Someone Else's Yesterday and covered his experiences as Gordon, but also has memories of being General Israel Putnam of the Revolutionary War. Jeff's new book, Fire in the Soul, From Antietam to Ground Zero, incorporates the material from his first book, Someone Else's Yesterday. It also provides his account of meeting the mother of a young child in Carol Bowman's forum, who remembered being a firefighter at the World Trade Center. And you may know this young boy as the little firefighter in my earlier podcast episode. If you've always wondered who the firefighter was that died at the Trade Center that day, and that the little boy remembers being, the answer can be found in Jeff's latest book, Fire in the Soul. When e-books became a thing, the notion was that books in paperback form would disappear, but sometimes you just can't beat that moment of divinity of being able to actually touch and hold a physical copy. And this has led to a strong market in second-hand books, with some copies being listed for quite surprisingly high prices. Someone Else's Yesterday was one of the books that became a highly prized collectible, and I'm mentioning this because Jeff has very kindly offered to sign a copy of his original book as a raffle prize for the purchases of his current book. I'll provide the details for the raffle at the end of the episode, but let's talk to Jeff now about his memories of being an eternal warrior. Jeff, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. But before we delve into eternal soldiers and their military ways, we should start by mentioning the re-release of your book with the extra content that you've got in it. Uh, the book now is uh, Fire in the Soul, Reincarnation from uh, Antietam to Ground Zero. And it is actually my first book, uh, Someone Else's Yesterday, with uh, brought up to date because Someone Else's Yesterday was written 20 years ago. And I bring things up to date a little bit in that and add 100 new pages and a new section on a little boy who was telling the story about being a firefighter and uh, passing away in the North Tower in 9-11. Yeah, I think I actually covered that story in one of my early episodes, but your book contains extra information that I wasn't aware of, so it's definitely worth having a look at, and really people should seek it out because it's a great book. I mean, your first original book, without the even the excerpts, is incredible. It's a great book. It's just such a wonderful book to read, but with the extra content, it's fascinating, completely fascinating. People should, yeah, definitely get out there and give it a look. You actually have past life memories from several lives, not just, we've heard of about your memories from John B. Gordon, and that's probably your strongest one, but you have other military lives, don't you, that you feel you've had? Yeah, and at, I feel those at different levels, different, you could say different strengths because of uh, 
some it's uh, pretty much like a, an inkling, but there's an awful lot of coincidences, and then some that are uh, very strong. One of them uh, that I wrote about in the book was uh, Samurai Lifetime. Now, when I got these feelings, this information and so on, I took a lot of it with a grain of salt. I wouldn't believe what I came up with just because I came up with it in a meditation. I wanted uh, verification or validation from at least two other sources. Well, I, I had had one time during the meditation, a, uh, uh, and also during dreams, uh, samurai lifetime. Now, I went to a uh, psychic fair. She was supposed to be the best one of the whole group, and I used to go see her once in a while. I would not give her information, but just ask her. She'd say, what do you want? I'd say, you know, just uh, how about some past lifetimes? And one time I did that, and the second one was a samurai lifetime, and she said, I could see you. She said, "Uh, you're very good samurai, very talented and stuff. She said, very ugly also. (laughs) She said, yeah, the big like you know the top knot the hair on you know the top of the head and everything she said uh, but you were very good you used to put on uh, tournaments and stuff and, and uh, so that was the second validation but the third one that came along was probably the best of any any of the past life uh, feelings and stuff as far as the validation i was at uh, borders books with my wife in stanford connecticut and she likes cooking and baking, so she was in the baking section, and I was over in the uh, history section. And I was in a row of books. There was two shelves of books, and I'm in between those, about five feet apart. And then down at the end was uh, a man, woman, and a little boy. He must have been about five years old. And I don't know what relationship the man was to the little boy and the, and the woman, but it was like he wanted the woman to take care of the kid while he went off and did his thing. So... She sat down with the little boy, had the, had a big book of airplanes, and he's on the floor, and he's turning the pages, and he's making airplane noises. And I'm looking at him, and I said, this is a cute little kid. And all of a sudden, he picks his head up real quick, and he's looking at me, and he says, Samurai. Wow. And the, and the hair went up by the back of my neck. And he wasn't really looking at me. He was like look, more looking through me. And the woman said to him, what did you say? And he said, Samurai. He said, what is that? And she said, she told him it was like a, a sword. She said, where do you see that? He said, nowhere. nowhere. Where, what, what is that? And she kept explaining to him that it was a sword. Well, after the hair went back down on, on my neck, I walked over and I explained to her it was a person and uh, they had different types of swords and things. And I'm looking around and I'm trying to see if there's any books or anything that he could have seen, like, you know, the Ninja Turtles or something like that. But uh, even then, he, he it wouldn't have brought samurai to mind and he and he said it perfectly and uh so that was the that was the third uh, validation i got for that lifetime i actually found that samurai i always talk about in-betweens i like in-betweens i like sunsets i like sunrises and things like that and also when you're uh, into uh, meditations and so on you can pick up things in meditations but a lot of times you can pick up things as you're just dozing off or just waking up it's that in in between time there sometimes things come to you i woke up one morning and i was thinking samurai samurai and the word tomba t-o-m-b-a came to mind so i said okay what's this so i get on the computer and i put in samurai Tomba and Tomba is Japanese for tomb. Now, in some of the pictures that pulled up, there was a beautiful equestrian statue over there in uh, Tokyo with a samurai on it. 
And <laughs> I went and started looking at, at that, and I said, that, that's just one of the most beautiful statues I've ever seen. And I said, well, Gordon's got one down there in, in Georgia on the corner of the Capitol building, and a, another lifetime personage has a, another statue, or equestrian statue. But I said, that's beautiful. And I started looking, and things started playing into each other. That, his story started connecting with uh, other stories of other lifetimes. So, uh, yeah, one of the things that comes across in your life um, at the moment, even in this lifetime, is that you've recognized patterns that occurred with regard to John B. Gordon and things that have happened in his life that actually happened in yours. And you had a similar thing with the samurai, didn't you? The same thing with the samurai. And also, uh, many years ago, I had talked to that. I believe it was the same psychic, and she said, maybe you should look into why you live in Connecticut. After the, the Gordon thing came out, I had picked up a book on uh, Israel Putnam. A lot of people won't recognize the name, but if you explain his place in history, they start to understand his importance because uh, George Washington, during the Revolutionary War, was a major general. They had not made lieutenant generals yet. They eventually raised Washington up to lieutenant general level, but he was a major general. The next person in rank down from him was Israel Putnam, who is buried in Brookline, Connecticut. But the story goes on to go back a little farther. He at one time was a British soldier, or he was with Rogers Rangers. He was uh, during the French and Indian War, and he had been captured. And they took they were hauling him back to uh, Canada. And the Indians, the Mohawk Indians, a great big Mohawk Indian. He was big for barely big guys. The guy who caught him, his his musket misfired, and this big Indian just grabbed him and hauled him off. But anyway, as they were bedding down for the night, some of the Indians decided to play games and tied him to a tree and started lighting fires around his feet and everything and throwing tomahawks at his head. And uh, one of the tomahawks hit him in the cheek. He had a scar for the rest of his life on his on his cheek. Ooh, and then terrifying. a French, but stranger than that, a French soldier had smashed him in the jaw with a, a gun butt. Now, a French officer came along, saw what was going on, didn't care for a prisoner being treated that way, put the fire out, he told the guys to leave him alone, took him, undid him from the tree, and gave him to the big Indian to take care of. Well, the thing was, his jaw was so smashed up and everything. Back then, the soldiers used to eat uh, hardtack, which by the name, you could tell it's awful hard. Putnam couldn't eat, and the Indian soaked the hardtack and soaked all his food in water to soften it up and then fed him by hand, keeping him alive. Do you remember the story about Mrs. Gordon saving, uh, saving uh, her husband? Mm. His jaw, jaw was wired shut. And she fed him beef tea and brandy to keep yes. him alive. Yeah. <laughs> so it was sort of like that. Now, the thing is, I grew up in Westport, Connecticut. And back during the Revolutionary War, the British pulled in one of the biggest fleets to ever come, uh, enemy fleet to ever come over to the American coast, uh, landed, and they uh, sent two columns of soldiers up to Danbury, Connecticut to burn it because it was uh, the supply area. I was born in in Danbury, but uh, on the way back, uh, they had, they weren't attacked too much on the way up there. But the time it took 
between the time they went up and time coming back, the Continental Army had gathered together, the men that were around, and the Minutemen and all those people, under the command of uh, Benedict Arnold at the time, because they were stationed at Putnam Park, which is about 10 miles away from my home at the time, and has has an equestrian statue of Putnam there, and he's riding his horse down these stairs, deep steps, and he's raising his fist and shaking it at the dragoons that have been chasing him. And that'll enter, enter into the story later. But that was the quarters, winter quarters of the Continental Army under Israel Putnam. Now, Benedict Arnold had his horse shot out from him at the Battle of Richfield because they started uh, attacking the British on their way back. And then they pulled back and they set up a ambush for the British because they knew where the ford was in uh, Westport, where they had crossed. They figured they, they were coming back down to the river there and crossing. And they set up an ambush on top of this hill up in an area known as Broadview Road now. Well, if you came out my front door as a kid and took a right and went up the hill and went over the stone wall and went up to the top of the hill, you're standing on Broadview. Wow. So I grew up on the hill where Putnam's men had to were set up the defenses against the British. Now, a Tory came along. <laughs> a Tory is a person that had uh, leanings toward the British and warned them of the uh, ambush, and they took another route and went down back down to Campo Beach and uh, had the Battle of Campo Hill down there. But it was so costly to the British and, and men, they had so many men killed and wounded, that they never did an inland excursion like that again. So now, also, Putnam, raising his hand, on the uh, on his horse coming down those steps that was something that happened at Horseneck which is nowadays is Greenwich Connecticut there was a, a little jog that went in and it was shaped like a horse's neck so they called it Horseneck but up at the top of the hill there was a place called Knapp's Tavern my mother's maiden name is Knapp that's where Israel Putnam was when the he was warned about the British dragoons coming and he was on his horse and they started chasing him and he went to the sheer cliff where the hundred steps were cut into the stones very steep and he gunned his horse down the steps and he made it away of course they shot a hole in his hat and everything they, they almost got him but we go harken back now to Gordon Gordon mentioned Putnam's ride in his book reminiscences of the Civil War where he Gordon was trying to get away from uh, the Union troops, only had one out, and that was to ride his horse down a steep embankment, and they ended up going tumbling down and ended up in the water. So you have that connection there. Now, just up the street from my house was another road, Hemlock Hill, very steep, and it's my grandfather lived at the top of the hill, which went up to, toward Broadview again, that same hill, where the, uh, they were going to ambush the British. My brother and his friend were with me. They had English bikes. On English bikes, the brake is on the hand grip. You squeeze it, and the brakes work. I was on a little American bike, which didn't have the luxury of a hand grip brake. You had to step on the, when the pedal's going around. You had to step on the pedal, pedal when it was back to stop the bike. They took off down the hill. They went tiring around the corner. I'm zipping around. I'm trying to catch up to them. But I'm going down the hill so fast, my little legs couldn't stay on, on the pedals. They were going so fast. I had to be doing like 35 or more. And I went right out in the road and slammed into a police sergeant's wife's car, right into the driver's door. I must have scared, almost scared the women to death. The bike was twisted around my legs, the tire and the handlebars and everything. And she knew me because I would just go around the neighborhood and deliver 
newspapers and stuff. And she said, Jeffrey, all right? He said, yeah, I'm all right. And I took the bike and went home. Well, she was all shook up, called her husband, and he was on duty. He came up with another uh, police officer that came over the house to check to make sure I was all right and everything. And I kept telling him I didn't hit the car, meaning I physically didn't hit the car. I said, the bike did. You know, I had like a, a scrape on my arm, you know. And, and my father went over to uh, the lady's house and looked at the dent in the door, in the driver's door. And he came back. He said, you hit that car. I said, no, the bike did. No, you actually hit that car. I had a shirt on that day that, uh, well, had like little, It's not, they weren't dimples. They weren't indents. They were raised areas. I guess you could call them pimples. But what it was, was my father could see in the dust, could see the mark of my shirt, the little dotted areas were. So Gordon had his ride, and Putnam had his ride, and I yeah, had my was, And I see what the uh, psychic was talking about, because basically, once again in this life, you've also ended up living in within 10 miles, basically, of all of the things that happened in the lives of your previous lives. That's not all. I still have more. <laughs> My grandfather lived on Hemlock Hill. His second wife's name was Burr. She was Grace Burr. Her mother was Lottie Burr. I used to watch her mother babysit her, believe it or not, babysit her mother. Her mother was very elderly and blind, and I was very young. And sometimes when they would go up, they would they would leave me downstairs, and they would say, you know, watch Mrs. Burr. You know, if she needs something, get her, get her a drink of water and all that type of stuff. Well, anyway, you ever hear of Aaron Burr? Yeah. He was the third vice president under uh, Jefferson. Mm. Okay. I don't know where I've now, heard of that, but I have heard of him, yeah. Well, he killed Alexander Hamilton. You know the the play, this popular play out, That's Hamilton? Right. Yep. Burr, Aaron Burr killed Hamilton. But but anyway, now my mother my mother always admired a eagle pen that my grandmother had. And my grandmother said, Josie, when I'm gone, it's yours. So anyway, my grandmother passed away, and her uh, sister was at the house, and my mother was there and was asking about the uh, pin, the eagle pin. And I think my great-aunt Bessie actually knew what my mother was asking about and didn't want to find it for her, okay? So she's going through the desk, and she finds this copper, uh, you know, copper turns brown when it's aged, uh, copper it was a button it was bent and it had like an eagle on she says here's an eagle thing and she threw it to her here you go well my mother hung on to that for a while almost sold it at a flea market for five bucks my father found out she said what are you doing he said the guy give me five bucks she said, i'll give you five bucks and he grabbed it away from her now my father was a coin collector this was the thing was a button but he got a, mag a, a newspaper, numismatic uh, magazine type thing, and on the front cover is a picture of this button. This button was from George Washington's inauguration. You remember I said my grandmother's last name was Burr? Yeah. She was related to Aaron Burr. Now, oh. Washington, one of his first aide-de-camps during the Revolutionary War, was Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was a genius. Oh, he had a nasty temper, and a lot of times he would rub people the wrong way. Washington only had him as an aide-de-camp for a short while, and then he gave him to another general. You know what general he gave him to? Putnam. Aaron Burr was Putnam's aide-de-camp for a while, quite a while, too. Wow. So you start seeing all those things on that one hill where I lived and all these other tie-ins. Yeah, that your life is quite intertwined with these lives that you remember having. There's another little tie-in that ties in me, the 9-11 boy, 
Gordon and Putnam. At the Battle of Long Island, uh, Israel Putnam was trying to hold off the British, which was they were extremely outnumbered. They had to keep backing across the island and ended up on uh, Brooklyn Heights, which is just across the river from Manhattan. Okay? Now, Gordon, after the war, had a speech that he gave, Last Days of the Confederacy. And the first place he ever gave that speech was the Tabernacle of Brooklyn which sits on Brooklyn Heights. Now, down the hill from Brooklyn Heights is, uh, you get start to get to the Coney Island area, still Brooklyn, but the 9-11 boy, the firefighter that he was telling the story of, is on the wall, the memorial wall down in Brooklyn, memorializing the, uh, the men from uh, New York that passed away in 9-11. Hmm. All, <laughs> all in that same area. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, you, want to, you can't use the coincidence word too much anymore. Well, I mean, that's the thing that's common with reincarnation. In fact, I'm hoping to catch up with someone who's done their thesis on it, and that is that synchronicity is a massive part of reincarnation, whether you like to admit it or you don't. When I first came across that, I went, it's got to be bull cookies, but when you look into it, it's actually, it happens, and it happens all the time. And, in fact, you yourself were actually kind of led to your memories of Gordon because you had little things happening all through your life. Do you think with regards to that, I've often wondered, because I had an intriguing thought, and I'll go into it in a minute, but I've often wondered whether you actually leave little crumbs through your own life to try and prompt your recall. Do you remember having past life recall in your other past lives? Like, do you remember, say, as Putnam, knowing that you'd lived before? There was something that Gordon wrote in his his, uh, reminiscences of the Civil War, where he talked about uh, sort of spiritual thing and and the great beyond and all that. So there might be something there. And then let's see, the samurai was uh, raised Buddhist. So I imagine he had had some feelings there. And one of the things, you know, when I was looking into the the samurai, uh, that stuff, I wasn't looking too deeply. That first time that I saw the statue, they looked around, but uh, Kusanoki Masige, if I'm pronouncing it right, was his name. Their family crest was used during World War II because he was so faithful to the uh, emperor that they used his family symbol for the kamikaze pilots. Oh, okay. wow, really? Now, we were talking about Putnam. Everybody knows the thing about don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like John Gordon in the uh, down at the Sunken Road. Not yet. Don't fire till he wanted the Union soldiers would be right on top of them, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But I looked at that kamikaze thing, and it showed a ship heavily damaged with smoke all over the place that had been hit by the kamikaze pilots. And Putnam was famous for that. Don't shoot to see the whites of the eyes at Bunker Hill, okay, mm. which was really a loss for the Continentals. But like one British general said, Two such victories for us, and we can go home because they lost so many men at uh, Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill. But you want to take a wild guess at what the name of the ship was that the kamikazes had attacked? The USS Bunker Hill. Are you joking? No. See, that's what I'm saying. I go along and I I just shake my head and say, no. No, I keep having all these. It's like a tapestry being (laughs) sewn together. Well, it's interesting because it's like you 
are surrounding yourself with whether you're doing it because of a sense of familiarity or whether it's a sense of maybe wanting to try and remember each time you come back um that you you keep on do having these little breadcrumbs and these little hints that come at you all the time and i had an interesting and intriguing thought about your lives because you actually sent me a list of the ones that you remember your past lives you remember as you say kusanoki mashigi Masasige. yeah. <laughs> See, I would never get that. And you also remember being Arthur de Richemont, which I assume was Azure de Richemont. Okay, a tiny bit. That's the one probably out of all of them that's the least. And that was pointed out to me by another person who was involved in that time period and believes I had been in that time period and all. And she said, go take a look at this. She said, I think I found it, and I went, and here's another equestrian statue of Arthur de Richemont. Now, de Richemont is the French version of uh, Richmond, okay? Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy, mm. okay, mm. Here, here in the States. So you got that little thing. Then there was another thing where he was at the Battle of Alzincourt, I believe it was. Alzincourt. Yeah, and he was picked up for dead. He, they found him under a bunch of bodies. He had been wounded badly. They picked him up for dead. They recognized the shield, his coat of arms. There was a boar or something on it. And they uh, saved his life. He became prisoner, but saved his life. And uh, another thing is strange with him. He had fought on the side of the English and he had fought on the side of the British, much like Putnam. Putnam. Putnam, mm. British and the American. Mm. But he had a nickname because one of the wounds on his face his cheek. His nickname was Scar. Oh, wow. It's the same as Gordon. Gordon <laughs> had scars on his face as well. Like. Oh, yeah. When he gets shot in the face, it kind of tends to leave a scar, yeah. Yeah. So, the, so there's a quite a few parallels with Gordon there because Gordon was also, obviously, that was the memory you had at Antietam was the day that he was, like, shot really, really badly several times and was within an inch of dying as well. And not yet, not yet. That's why you were saying not yet because you thought you were going to die and you didn't it, and i've always had a i've always liked the french language i used to buy uh, um, celine dion before mm. she got real popular was young up in canada and a lot of her cds were uh, in french and mm. i got all of the ones in french and there was another uh, singer i i got it it just feels right. familiar I guess you would say familiar. The interesting thing about Richmond as well, and this is something that I, I had a bit of an epiphany about and went, that's really interesting, right? All of the people that you remember being, so the Samurai, de Richmond, Putnam and Gordon, all fought their wars on their home soil. You're not like a pattern where you go off and you fight for it in another country. So it's almost like there's a tie to you, for you, there's a tie to you being around in the times when your country is at threat. It's almost like you want to yeah, you you're, come. You're, you're catching on to something that I'd noticed. Uh, Kusunoki also put the emperor back on the throne. Mm. So it's sort of like being a, well, you've got the warrior thing. These fellows were extremely good in strategy and tactics, okay? I wrote up the standard operating procedures for the Westport Fire Department. They still follow to this day. They were very good at that. They were like reuniters in their, their countries. Even though Gordon 
fought for the Confederacy. A lot of the truth is going to come out on the on the Civil War and how that all started and happened, and, and there was other countries involved in that and stuff. But after the uh, there was one author I read, uh, he was writing about Gordon and said that he was one of the most important people in the last half of that century in the United States. And it wasn't because of the Civil War prowess or anything like that. It was that uh, speech I told you about, Last Days of the Confederacy. He was going around and trying to reunite the North and the South. You know, a lot of people <laughs> complained that the, that his writing was a lot of purple prose and every soldier was wonderful and honorable and stuff like that. But uh, he was trying to do a job there. He was trying to get the people back together. What am I doing today talking to you? I have never made a dime on my story. In 30 years, I have never made one thin dime off my story. But I feel it's something that maybe unite people with themselves get people to think about themselves. I think that's a very valid point, given especially that you and I have had conversations, and I'm, I really don't want to go into current American politics at the moment because it is a very contentious field, as you know, <laughs> and it's something I'd you, really rather not you, cover. You couldn't pay me enough to go into American <laughs> politics right now. <laughs> but I have to say, I, I kind of always wondered with you, because you've always gone for sort of a military life, and in this life you became a firefighter, right? But it's interesting that you actually are living this life right now at this time, when really America has come several times close to what I would call almost being on the cusp of civil war again. Yes, that's one of the things they're trying to get going here, the bad people. that They would love to see that. But you know what it is? It's like they came up to the good people and said, come on, come on, and started pushing us around and said, sorry, we're not going to fight. We're not going to raise our hands to you. We're not going to do no weapons, nothing like that. We're going to meet you in the courts. See, that's the thing. I think I think you, for some reason in your life, you've, our police over here have a motto uh, on the door of the cars, and that's to protect and serve. And I think that is something that is very strong within you. I think you feel very bound to your homeland, wherever it is, whether you're in Japan, France or America, and obviously most of your lives now have been in America for quite a while. But I think you have this thing of a need to be there when your country is divided, if you get me, and to try and bring it back. All these gentlemen that we talked about were reuniters. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? Like that, yeah. obviously, yeah. Uh, and it makes me wonder then, do we actually choose when we're going to come back? It may, <laughs> the answer is a big yes. Yeah, because... Because another, another thing these gentlemen were very interested in was justice. Arthur de Richmond was extreme in that way. He what right was right and wrong was wrong and that type of thing. Kusunoki wanted to get the emperor back on the throne and uh, take down the, the shogunates, you know, so it wasn't all a bunch of warlords and everything. At one time, uh, Gordon was an attorney, but he gave that up because he got fed up with it. He said more was being done in the cloakroom than in the courtroom. So they're making deals, you know, behind the scenes and everything. Didn't like that. He wanted it, you know, in the open and everybody gets to hear each side of the story, stuff like that. But found out very quickly that's not how it worked. It's interesting, isn't it, though? Would you say that that means, though, that if you if you can come back and make that choice, then, then we must have some sort of foreknowledge of... I've never believed in karma or destiny in the sense that our lives are pre-mapped. I think we have choice when we come down here. Otherwise, there'd be no point to it. Otherwise, you're just really running through a play. But I think that it seems to indicate that we have at least some idea of the possible paths that life may take. Right. But we're 
we'll go back to William Shakespeare again. All the worlds of stage, and all our, all of us are actors upon it. We have great input into the script that we come here with. A lot of the uh, we don't have a lot of the mem- we don't have all the memories because you can imagine if you came here with all the memories of all the past lives you ever lived. You know, maybe you lived a hundred or a thousand. You wouldn't be able to function. You'd be a babbling idiot in the corner of some psych ward somewhere, probably put on the front page of a, a medical magazine with the worst case of schizophrenia ever found. You know, you wouldn't be able to function. But you come here with a lot of the stuff that you can bring up to put you on the path, like the trigger. I hit that trigger in uh, Antietam when I walked into the sunken road. What happened to me? How that affected me? And that put me on the path that I'm on today with the, with the books and the podcasts and all that stuff. Karma? Yes, there is something about karma. If you've been here and there's something you may, might want to correct or we come here with other actors, you know. A lot of the people in our lives now were in our lives at other times. That was the other question I was going to ask you. Given you're an eternal soldier, have you ever come across anyone else who was someone that you fought with in the past now or in another life? Well, I, I was criticized for it. Even though in, in my book I had pictures of some of the fellows that I worked with on the, on the fire department, uh, some of them would have come in contact with Gordon during the Civil War and others were in, on the opposite side. But the thing was, these uh, doing the research on Gordon, I found quite a few photographs that looked like dead ringers of guys that I work with. Now, I asked these guys to use their photos in the book. And I said I would not say anything about whether they believed in reincarnation or not. I told them, I said, it really doesn't matter if you believe it or not. But I, would, I showed them the pictures and stuff, and they were, they were amazed. Some of them were actually, the pictures I used of them were actually the same poses of the Civil War people. Now, I wrote in the book that I don't know, but look at these pictures and and look at these men and uh, one of them especially was uh, general uh, cadmus wilcox was uh, wayne zaletta a picture of him wayne zaletta has a handlebar mustache in uh, this this life wilcox had a big mustache in the civil war life but also much like gordon in the both photos of wilcox and uh, wayne zaletta the firefighter they had a mark on their cheek in the exact same spot wow did you know will uh Wilcox in their last life. Do you know of any similarities in personality or patterns or traits they may have? Well, the the thing was that reading about these different gentlemen and their different roles and so on and, and, and their personalities and everything, that pretty well matched up with the, with the guys also. See, to me, that's pretty telling because I remember reading about um, two pieces, two articles, one that Gordon wrote and one that you wrote that were transposed side by side, and you could see the same writing style in both, which was quite interesting to me. Yeah, and we both uh, did some firefighting. He, he saved the town of Wrightsville after the, <laughs> the Union troops set the mile-long covered bridge on fire to stop him from crossing the Susquehanna River. It burned back to the town of Wrightsville, set a lumberyard on fire, which threatened the town, and uh, Gordon and his men uh, uh, had asked for buckets, fire buckets, back at that time. Everybody was supposed to have fire buckets so you could have a, fi- a fire a bucket brigade. Well, nobody had any buckets when they wanted to put out the bridge, but as soon as the lumber yard in the, in the town was threatened, there was buckets coming out of everywhere. So Gordon had his men uh, getting the water out of the Susquehanna River, and they helped uh, save the 
town of Wrightsville, so he had a little taste of my job. So I was going to say, I forgot all about that, actually. I, for, I completely forgot that that happened with Gordon. I, I knew it, but I'd forgotten about it. Do you think that's why you might have gone into firefighting in this life, given you originally were in the military for, at the beginning of this life, but you kind of left this time, didn't you, and you ended up going and doing firefighting as your career? Well, I wanted to go into the military to spend some time and figure out what I wanted to do in my life because I knew I wasn't going to go to college. So, But what the military taught me was I didn't want to stay in the military because <laughs> they could send you all kinds of nasty places. And But uh, when I got out, my father had been a firefighter for 13 years, had a heart attack and retired. My brother was then on the department and he made lieutenant and in his 13th year, he had a heart attack and retired, and then I was on in uh, my 13th year, and I'm assistant chief, and I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs waiting for the heart attack, but it didn't come. So <laughs> Thank you, I take, I, take after, I take after my mother. She's a little energizer bunny. She just keeps going. Thank goodness for your mum's genes then. She broke the curse. Yeah. yeah, there's just so many things tied together. I was trying to figure out there was there was something else with one of these I wanted to bring up. I forgot. Huh? Maybe maybe it'll come back. It may do. Well, with regards to the firefighter, then you had the synchronicity of actually writing in the Carol Bowman's forum about your own life, I assume. But that's how you ended up meeting Little Firefighter, wasn't it? Or, or the mother of Little Firefighter. How did that one come about? Well, the, uh, I poked around a little bit, and uh, I met uh, Carol a few times, uh, Carol Bowman, when I was doing um, uh, lectures with uh, Walter Simcue, who sadly passed away a short time back. And uh, she, her husband had started up a, a forum, and this was back in, I think, in the 1990s, that is still going to this day. And mainly, to begin with, it, it's spread out now, uh, so y'all come, but... <laughs> Back when she first had it, it was mainly uh, children's past lives because a lot of people were putting more credence into the children's story because they were, you know, uh, babes uh, out of the mouth of babes come gems, you know. So, and and a lot of times they were speaking of things that uh, were beyond their age range and and all that. So a lot of people would put more credence into the children's stories. So she had this forum and. Uh, uh, every once in a while, I, I would stop in, you know, and I, I think I put something in one time, and people would get back to me, and it kindly faded, and, and I would only go in like once or twice a year if the uh, monitors, uh, people monitoring the, the forum, thought I could help somebody. And I got an email one day that said, Jeff, could you come in and see what this mother's talking about? She's saying her son's talking about firefighting. Well, went in and listened to what was being written down and everything. And uh, I said, all right, that's something. And uh, there was a lot of things that the mother didn't want to have on the forum. So we corresponded back and forth on uh, private emails, and she told me some of the stuff. And the stories her son was telling her and different numbers and things, and, and she was confused. But the stories he was telling, I said, there's only one way he could know that, and that's if he had been a firefighter. Because... It, at first, he actually said that he was a firefighter. His mother said, you want to be one? He said, no, I am one. And he said, I'm fire rescue. Bang, the bells went off in my head because a child that age, he started talking two and a half and he's about three years old. This was back in 07 when I was corresponding with her mainly. And um, this went on for quite a while and he keeps, uh, he just come out of the blue with different things. And uh, 
I said, he's absolutely right. They're, they're, but the thing was, it struck me that at first was, he said, firefighter and not fireman. How a child that small would usually say a fireman. And then when she said he had said he was fire rescue, now in New York, the fire rescue units, the rescue units are like the elite of the elite, okay? And they have like an ego. And I said, and I've seen them pass that stuff on to their children. A lot of the guys from Rescue One down in Manhattan used to come up to Connecticut and visit us and all that. And sometimes they'd bring their, their families with them and everything. Uh, they lost uh, 11 guys on 9-11. But anyway, he was telling his mother about coming down in the bucket truck, in the bucket. And at the bottom, there's a bounce and I said, yes, would you work the levers at with the very bottom if you don't, if you're not really careful? And, and, and there's there's a bounce. It's, but he was telling about all these. Th- he was describing a thermal imaging camera and how the men go in on line on the on the hose line, and if one gets off or lost, you have this uh, camera and you can find them in the smoke and stuff. <laughs> and I'm. And he had a sense of humor to it. He said, I, I'd say to him, cheese, say cheese when he'd find them. And uh, I said, it just his character and what he's saying, and it's the little nuances. It's not the big things. It's just the little things. That the only way you could have known it was if he's a firefighter. So he described, he told his mother these numbers. We tracked it down and found out that he had been the uh, uh, lieutenant on Ladder 3, uh, he said the station was in lower Manhattan. It, well, he said it was in downtown, and the station is just in the downtown area, and they lost uh, 12 men that day, and uh, the lieutenant died in the North Tower when it collapsed. He was also telling his private life about swimming and everything, and, and that's how we found the obituary and a lot of the stuff that he, he was saying lined up perfectly. He loved St. Patrick's Day, and the lieutenant uh, was uh, Irish, and it's just uh, everything just bang, bang, bang fell into place. Uh, you're right, it's the nuances. Like I seem to recall that he was able to describe how to use it, like a scuba or a like a, a snorkel. Like he could describe all that sort of stuff at like a very young age, couldn't he? Yeah, and there was also there's also tricks. I don't really like tricking people, but you can get them to uh, little children and stuff sometimes to go into that zone that sometimes they hit by themselves and start talking, but sometimes you can manipulate them into that. I had a granddaughter came in the house one time. She was barefoot outside. They yelled at her, go in and get your sneakers. She went and got sneakers, went outside. And I saw her struggling with the shoes like kids do, young kids. You know, they try to put the shoes on, sneakers on without untying them. So I went out, I said, you having trouble, you need help? She says, okay. So I was untying, the, loosening them up for her and everything. And I just said to her, were you able to put on your shoes when you, when you used to be big? Could you do it by yourself? And she like looked up at the sky and it was like a faraway gaze. And she said, yes. And she sat there for a while and showed me and described, I could see this Victorian young lady sitting in front of me doing up high top shoes. She was describing button hook. They used to have the the hooks for pulling the... uh, She's describing that, and then all of a sudden she goes back to that faraway look again and says, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Now, the mother with the 911 boy, the way he described things, he sat in the front cab of the vehicle. I said, okay. But he told his mother, he said, I'm not a chief. And so I said, okay, he's got to be a captain or a lieutenant. Now, I said, "Here's, here's something you want to trick you want to do sometime. I said, either just say, hey, cap... 
I said, you know, short for captain, or hey, Lou, same thing, short for lieutenant. A lot of times the guys you'd be working around, hey, Lou, you know, instead of hey, lieutenant, and uh, you might get a response from him. Well, he was in the tub, and he was playing with his fire engines and all that, and he was telling his mother, here's where I sat. I sat in the front of the cab here, and, you know, he wasn't the driver. He sat on the other side in the passenger seat. And his mother said, uh, well, were you the captain? He says, no. She said, well, then you were the Lou. And he just snapped around and looked at her, and he said, how did you know? <laughs> I sent the mother a picture of the lieutenant, a handsome guy. Uh, there's a, a cute little story about that. He had a way with women, and they remember, they still remember him to this day. There was a woman, a girl who put a rose on his uh, nameplate and picture down there and uh, that I told you before about Coney Island where they had the memorial wall and she left a nice note there. I, I wrote I wrote about it. I didn't say what was in the note because it was rather personal. But uh, good looking guy, dressed uniform, uh, gave sent the mother a picture and she walked by one time when he was sit, sitting on the couch and just dropped the picture alongside him. Well, if you did that to a regular child, they'd probably say, yeah, what's this? Who, who's this? You know what he did? He picked it up and looked at it. He said, where'd you get this? That's not a very good picture. <laughs> really? Wow. So yeah. he recognized himself in it, like he recognized that it was the person he was. But over the years, his, uh, everything faded. He's, uh, let's see, he's 19 years old now, six feet tall, 195 pounds, muscular, athletic, and a good football player. He's one of the colleges, I'm not going to mention the name. I was going to ask you that. I mean, I don't want to go into any details because we want to retain his anonymity so that his life goes on without being bothered too much. But has he made any choices about what his future is going to be? Does he think he'll be something like a firefighter or does he want to do something else this, this time around? Uh, I had his mother, because so many people asked me about that, if he was going to be a firefighter. I asked his mother and she <laughs> came back to the phone she said, Nope, it doesn't want to have anything to do with it. It's too dangerous. Well, you can't deny that one. I mean, remembering dying in 9-11 would have to be one of the most terrifying experiences, really, honestly. And I have no doubt that he remembers it. They were being pulled out of the uh, building, and uh, one of the people that made it out had come down the, the stairs, and he yelled to him, Hey, Lou, we got orders to get out. And he says... Uh, uh, I'll be right behind you. I have, I have to help these women. He was helping some women, and, and uh, that was it. Oh, wow. That's amazing, isn't it? That's the, the simple choice that can just change everything. It's quite sad. It amazes me that people have the courage to actually go into a situation like that. I don't know if I would. I think I might be too frightened to. I suppose you just don't think. You're just thinking of trying to make a difference, I guess. Well, that young boy had an experience similar to what happened to me at Antietam in the Sunken Road because when he was 13 years old, his parents, they lived out on the West Coast. They came to the East Coast here. They went down to the World Trade Center area. Now, up above on the ground are some beautiful reflecting pools and waterfalls and the names all around the pools and stuff, and it's very pleasant looking. I remember what, I won't go there anymore. I, I, I don't want want to go there because I remember what it used to look like but down underneath that is a large museum and it's like cavernous in areas okay it's huge it's the foundation of uh, you know one of the World Trade Center buildings it's big real high ceilings and everything and they can have some rather large displays and one of them they have is ladder three 
So when they went there, upstairs, they walked around there, you know, I guess it spirals down to the lower areas. And he got over toward that truck and he, he wanted out of there. He told his mother, it's very claustrophobic, uh, I don't like it. So much so that he wanted to get out of there so bad that they asked the staff to help them find the quickest way out of the building. What he had done was he walked into a harmonic resonance, I guess you would call it, sort of like the sunken road for me. That was the vehicle he had been assigned to, and it's all smashed to pieces. Mm, God, it's hard to imagine it, isn't it? I mean, the, the emotion that must have been tied to that for a small boy to deal with is, this is why I actually like to, to tell these stories so that people who are going through the things themselves of having memories and being frightened by it, to let them realize that they're not alone, that there is a lot of emotion that is tied to these things. He dealt with it very well. The thing that's uh, great about his story was his concern about the people, how he couldn't get to the people and he wanted to help the people and all that. And that was his main concern. Not too much about himself. So uh, I think there's something there. Like uh, James Lessinger, Lessinger, little boy who who uh, had been a pilot, Navy pilot, off the Natoma Bay and, and uh, was killed there and everything. He used to have the nightmares and so on of, you know, kicking and trying to get out of the plane and everything, kicking the canopy. And, but uh, didn't have that sense from uh, the 9-11 boy. It's, it was his great concern about other people. Well, I suppose in some ways when you're a fighter, as opposed to being a fireman, you're actually working from two different points of view. As a fighter, you are actually, as a soldier, you are still protecting, you're still serving, but you're more confronted by what you're actually going through. So there's also a degree of, I've got to get in here and do this, but I've also tried to try and get myself out alive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're kind of, you're trying to do both. You want to, because there's not a lot of point in throwing your life away for nothing, you know. Whereas with a firefighter, I think and you would be able to attest to this a lot more than me, I think that the reason you do such a dangerous job is because you're first, as I said, protect and serve. I think it's about wanting to be there to be a, a major force for good, in a sense. Yeah, well, you have to get a different mindset. You have to put your feelings... Well, sort of Gordon used to write about it, too. He wrote about it when uh, one of his good friends, one of the generals, got killed. He, he was in his, uh, in his writings. He didn't have time to expressed his sadness at his friend being wounded and dying and all that and had to, had his own command and then also had to take over the command of this, his, his wounded friend uh, who passed away. But the thing is, you, if you start thinking about yourself, you're not going to be working on a job too well. So a lot of times you would, uh, oh, I don't know what you call it, you go to a rescue call and someone could be pretty nasty and you'd put yourself in a zone where the job's the most important thing and what you have to do and all that. And even if you have to say to yourself, this is a uh, training exercise and these are mannequins, you know, and that type of thing, it, it could be tough. My platoon up on the wall, I had, they gave me, when I retired, they gave me a, a shield with my uh, name on it and assistant chief, the, the front piece to the, the helmet. And uh, wrote some nice stuff underneath. They said, said they were trying to make me cry. I said, well, you're not going to make me cry. At least I'm not going to show you. But they had down there how it was an honor to be on my platoon and everything and uh, wished that other people could have seen me the way they saw me as brave and fearless. And I said, you guys didn't see me after the calls when I went back to the office and closed the door and put my head down on the desk. <laughs> because then, then you have the luxury, you might say, of going through your mind of all the stuff you've just been through. But you, you can't do that. You can't do it while you're doing it. 
No, no, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to function. If, and if I go crazy, everybody around me is going to go crazy because I'm the one giving the orders. <laughs> well, exactly. But I think, too, that military people can feel that as well. I remember there's a, an Australian general that I absolutely love. His name is, um, he was called Pompey. I can't think of his actual name now. But he was one of my heroes. And he used to send his men out to war knowing that, he wasn't going to get them all back, that he was going to lose large chunks of men. And then he would, after the battle was over, just go to his rooms and just cry because he had to do that to his men. Like he was uh, very, he cared a lot about his men. You know, it's, it's when you think of a soldier, you think, well, you're actually going out there to kill someone, so therefore it's not the same thing as a firefighter. But in a lot of ways, it actually is because you are doing it to fight for the protection of your country, but you're also trying to keep your men safe as much as you can. Yes, I'm glad we went through all that 15 years as a shift commander, and we lost one guy at a fire. He was a volunteer. I didn't realize how old he was. He was sort of like our unofficial photographer, uh, so he'd come by, and he'd always check in with me, and he'd always check out with me before he left the scene. And he came to one of the last fires I had. It was a 9,000-square-foot house, and half the house had Half the house was blazing away, so pretty much figured it was an arson fire. And uh, I saw him, and I said, hey, George, you're going to get some good pictures. So we're fighting the fire and everything, and it, all of a sudden I got a call from dispatch, and they said, call in by phone. So I called in by phone, and, they, and the dispatcher told me that George had died. I said, what do you mean died? He was right here. And they said, no, he went, he went home, and he died. What had happened was, and if, probably if you could have written a script and he, he would have signed it and all that, it was perfect. It was his 50th anniversary. He had spent the night, evening with his wife out to dinner, and he came home. He loved the fire department. Then there was the call. A lot of times he would show up before the engine would get there, and I'd say, George, are you setting these fires? <laughs> He'd be there so quick. But he didn't check out with me. He wasn't feeling good. And he walked down the road, and he was uh, uh, getting sick to his stomach and everything. And the ambulance crew tried to stop him, get him in the ambulance to check him out. And he said, no, no. And he went home and just collapsed on the floor, and that was it. But he, a few days later, the chief was questioning about the fire and all. He said, was the front door open when you got there? I said, chief, the front door wasn't there when we got there. <laughs> That's how bad it was burning. And I said, did anybody find the pictures George took? And over at the hospital, they found a, a roll of a film in his uh, shoe uh, when the uh, the, uh, the family got the clothes back and all that. There was a roll of film in the shoe, it, and uh, the chief took it and developed it, and there were some of the best fire pictures ever. And I said, George, what a way to go. You had a nice dinner, 50th anniversary. You got to come to a fire, and it took some great pictures that are still around. And uh, He made a difference and, right to the end. He, he was a great guy. I didn't know he was 80 years old, and uh, it's surprising what you find out, people, after you go to their funerals. During the war, he used to fly the hump in Burma. You know, the, the, that was a treacherous flight, but the, uh, he was a radio man, and uh, flying over the Himalayas, and it was uh, extremely dangerous, but he, he had done that. We never knew anything about that stuff, because a lot of people that do things like that, they don't talk about it. No, that's it, isn't it? That, that bravery of having faced some extraordinarily dangerous or, or brutal things that you've encountered and you just you just swallow it and just, you know, keep on going and can go back and do things that are dangerous. Uh, that's true courage to me. And if you go on um, 
oh, if you go to, you type in my name and you go to the, any of the images, you can find the image with me in a uh, white uh, fire chief's helmet from the side. You can see the uh, that marking that I talk about in the book coming from my mid-ear and uh, coming down and heading down toward my chin. It looks like a lightning streak that a lot of people say that I imagine. And it shows up very well in that picture. And George had taken that picture at a training fire we had at a house, and I didn't know it until I saw it one day when he showed some film. So that's where that picture came from. That was good old George. Did that. Thank God he was such a good photographer. And I think he was supposed to take that picture because it shows up that marking that people say that I'm imagining because I happen to mention that some of these markings I have are subtle, you know, and if you have, if it's the right light, you can see them. So they said, yeah, it's subtle. Yeah, right. He sees them. Nobody else does. Yeah. Well, there's, there's the evidence. You see that uh, picture and it's no doubt that it's there. Of course, nowadays, people would probably say, oh, Photoshop. <laughs> You're never going to win, are you? But the truth of it is that, you know, it's very difficult to often get scars and things on film because they don't show up. That's the trouble, you know? People say, oh, you know, that it's it's all rubbish and there is no scar there. Well, unless it's a really marked or, you know, pigmented scar, it's very difficult to get clear images of scars. Well, if you hunt around and you see enough of the photos that, there's uh, some of the websites, there's photos of the markings on uh, my forehead and the uh, uh, varicose veins on my calf and uh, higher up on the same leg where Gordon was wounded in Antietam. And then you've got the one with the fire helmet with the scar across my face like Gordon had. And they're around, but send people on a rabbit rabbit hunt they can go look for them <laughs> well exactly and then people go oh yes well you say you've got varicose veins but that doesn't prove that you were shot there but in actual fact that is often what does happen with a lot of these so the scars is that they might not be the same physical thing of an actual scar or a dent but people will get an anomaly or they'll get like an illness there that sort of points that area out you know what i mean so yeah so it's valid to me and i've seen that photo actually of the scar on your cheek i do know the one you mean because i have seen it in looking around doing your story yeah the uh, proof positive uh, program that was on the sci-fi channel they had a dermatologist checking my face and everything and i had those uh, that looked like negatives one of me and one of gordon that are overlaid in that program that dermatologist wouldn't give up much of anything he said that you know many profiles are the same and blah 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 but if you watch that uh, film, it's on my website. If you watch that film, when he overlays those pictures, the Gordon picture and, and me, the marking that I talk about over my left eye, it lines up perfectly with Gordon's when he overlays the pictures. Plus, it's not a profile of Gordon and I. It's a three-quarter shot or more, almost full face. So I don't know where he gets the profile. But uh, being a professional and being in business, I don't think he wanted to be criticized by saying, yeah, that's something, you know. Well, that's the trouble that we have, and um, that's one of the things I'm hoping to cover in a very an episode coming up, is that getting medical people to actually honestly sign off on things like that is very difficult because they don't want to even admit in the first place that it even happens. A lot of them won't even really admit that they've seen incidents of near-death experience or that people have come back from the dead and been able to describe things they shouldn't be able to describe. So they'll just, no, you, well, you know, there's no reason or your brain was still working and we didn't think it was. and they just will not admit that it's you know impossible for people to experience the things they're experiencing so i think that's the problem you've got is that breaking that barrier of medical disbelief is the hard part 
Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming back again. You've, you've just been incredible. And it's been great to talk about something that KM, KM was going to do an episode with me on it. But um, she sort of said, I don't know if we'd really have enough to talk about. So I thought it's probably good to get someone who is an eternal soldier, because you definitely are, and uh, hear it from the, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Yeah, and probably one of the most important things out of all this, and it was something that uh, Dr. Simcoe used to stress. Now, we talked about Kusunoki, and we talked about Arthur the Richmond, a Frenchman, and you have a uh, Japanese samurai, and I know of a couple of Native American lifetimes, and uh, so on and so on. And even <laughs> even a, a female lifetime in, in Ireland, uh, Peggy, Margaret was her name. But anyway, I know very little about her, but I did have some hints about that stuff. But anyway... So looking at that with all the different skin colors and everything and different, we are actually genderless and raceless, okay? And the way I look at it, we are, we're gods. I put a small G on it, but we're, we're from the source. I don't care if you want, to, you want to call it God, you want to call it Buddha, you want to call it Frank, anything like that. We are the experiencing portion of that source. So if you think about it, about being a god, uh, try to be a, a good god, because it all is, boils down to intent. You get up in the morning and you pick up a gun, you go and rob a bank. Well, you did that. If you, uh, you know, if you go out and feed the homeless or something like that, it's all intent. On uh, you can either be a creator or a destroyer, and it's up to us. It's that free will thing. That's why we have a lot of bad people. <laughs> you know, we're all God's children, but you see some of these people that are running around now, and I think he needs to give them a good spanking. So, I actually agree with you completely about that as well. I, I think we are all connected. I think we are all from the source, as you would say. I think that I've always felt that it was from like some sort of almost like a conscious collective where we get to the other side, we experience what it's like. We're all linked, and I really honestly feel that that's what happens. And as you say, I've said that, I've quoted, you You said that once before to me about reincarnation makes you raceless and I've said that to other people and you can see them do the double take because they think you're saying racist but in actual fact what you're actually saying is there is no such thing as race really, there's just people no, Spirits yeah. Spirits, consciousness really, We're not even people not, it's yeah, really about the consciousness Yeah, one of the things that's fascinating the speed of light is thought and I wrote, uh, I don't know if I wrote in my book but uh, one night at the firehouse, I was having a hard time sleeping, which was rare because a lot of times you're tired from calls and stuff. So I was rolling around and light, the sun was starting to come up and I looked, looked over and my wife's standing there and I said, my father passed away. And she said, yes. Now, to go one more than that, my sister lived in Georgia. My parents lived in Florida. My sister had such a feeling about my father. She got up at four o'clock in the morning and called my mother and said, is dad all right? And my mother said, they're putting him in the ambulance now. So we're connected. So <laughs> so yeah. try, to keep your thought, try to keep your thoughts nice in your head because they don't stay there sometimes. And as you say, try and be a positive force for good, which is a very nice line to kind of leave the conversation on, that we should always try and be the best that we could be and work from the best uh, reasons. Well, Jeff, thank you so, so much. This has been incredible. It's been so nice catching up with you, actually, too. Well, you're welcome. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been incredible. Really appreciate it. Okay. Love you. Bye-bye. Love you, too. Bye.
I mentioned Jeff's military lives seem to be largely focused on protecting his homeland, and it is interesting to me that he has come back right at this point in time, when America once more is deeply divided. Jeff dropped me an email after we did his episode and mentioned that he'd actually avoided delving deeper into his Putnam lifetime, as he kept getting clues and he could only deal with one major general at a time, thank you. Interestingly, as Jeff was doing his research, Synchronicity once more gave him a gentle shove towards a breadcrumb about his other past lives. Jeff connected with Stephen Sakalarios, who has his own reincarnation memories, and runs a company called Gold Thread Video Productions. Seeing Steve's business was based in Atlanta, Georgia, Jeff thought Steve might be ripe to hear about his memories of Gordon. The two men met and became friends and decided to revisit John B. Gordon's gravesite so they could record a piece on Jeff's memories. While at the cemetery, Jeff became aware of a group of women who were picking up sticks and debris from around the graves. Jeff had an inkling he knew who they might be, and he walked over to the woman who seemed to be in charge and said, Hello, are you ladies members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy? They affirmed that they were, and Jeff thanked them for keeping Gordon's grave so neat, to which they replied that he was a fine gentleman and they were glad to do it. As Jeff walked away, a curious look came over the woman's face, and Jeff, with his usual gentle, somewhat cheeky humour, wondered what she would have thought if she'd known she was talking to one of the Oakland Cemetery's residents. I'm personally of the opinion that she did a double take because Jeff and John B. Gordon are spitting images of each other. It must have been like having Gordon's ghost stroll up to you and thank you for doing his housekeeping. Jeff and Steve left the cemetery and went to two medium readings that Steve had arranged for Jeff. A numerologist was the first who tapped into Jeff's current life well but also remarked that he had been a leader in a past life and was a military general. And the second was a clairvoyant, Candace Zellner. She also recognised that Jeff had been a soldier, a general with great responsibility. She also saw a life as a British Special Forces officer, but she also deeply tapped into a French life, where she saw Jeff as a military leader of men, some of whom were black and were speaking French. I'm going to actually re recount a section of the book where Jeff speaks about that. Candace said to Jeff, You're so concerned about these men, it just puts a lot of pressure on you. You know what, Jeff? This is so interesting. You're not fearing the battle. Oh, this is going to make me cry. And Jeff said, I know what you're going to say. Candace continued, and what followed took both of them on an emotional sled ride downhill fast. She said, you're fearing the loss. You're leading these men into battle, and you're just praying. Dear God, dear God, please don't let anything happen to these men. You don't care about the gunfire. You don't care about the hand grenades. You don't care about the bombs. You don't care about any of all that. All you care about is the connection and responsibility you have for these men. I see you going forward with this burden on you. I can't see what happens after that. I don't know what happens. It's just like it lifted. It's like all the pain just lifted. There was such pain and grief and so much responsibility you carried. By this time, both Candace and Jeff's face were quite wet. She saw the soldiers surviving the battle and being decorated for his actions. I can see why she had that feeling about Jeff. All of Jeff's life seemed to be laced through with a strong duty of care and sense of responsibility toward his homeland and his men. One of the most famous eternal warriors would have to be General George S. Patton. And although he too is an eternal warrior, his motivation seemed to be related more to a gladiatorial passion for battle and an almost worshipful appreciation towards battle. A quote that is credited to him reads, So as through a glass and darkly, 
the age-long strife I see, where I fought in many guises, many names, but always me. Patton felt that in former lives he had been a prehistoric mammoth hunter, a Greek hoplite who fought against the Persians, and a soldier of Alexander the Great. The resource I had said that Alexander also fought the Persians during the siege of Tyre, but K.M. has great knowledge of Alexander and assures me that Alexander was actually fighting the Tyrians, who were allied to the Persians. He also felt that he was Hannibal of Carthage, whose brutal tactics enforced loyalty among his troops and power over his enemies, and he was a Roman legionary who served in Gaul under Julius Caesar. He related also that he was an English knight during the Hundred Years' War and a Marshal of France under Napoleon. K.M. was also able to clarify another point I was unsure about. It's difficult to find sites that will talk about Patton's reincarnation memories, as most of them focus on his military career, and often his reincarnation belief is only discussed sparingly, if at all. One site related that he also believed he was the Roman soldier who pierced Jesus' heart with a spear. I pondered vaguely to myself as I was writing this, thinking he must have got that one wrong, because I was pretty sure Jesus was supposed to have been stabbed in the side, not in the heart, and surely the man who did that would know that. K.M. was able to shed light on this point too, saying that she was pretty sure the reference was allegorical by relating another verse from the poem that Patton wrote. The verse reads, Perhaps I stabbed our Saviour in his sacred helpless side, yet I've called his name in blessing when in aftertimes I've died. Having now read that verse, I agree with K.M. that Patton was musing metaphorically, but it does give insight that in Patton's mind, war and religion are interlaced in an almost wholly sacred connection. Interestingly, Jeff also relates that he had some religious lives as well. So Patton was a very different soldier to Jeff in that he instead participated in areas of battle away from his home soil and his motivation seems to be more drawn to war and fighting itself. Interestingly, Patton's personality reflected some of the attributes of Hannibal, who he remembered being in the past. Hannibal and Patton were both known for their exceptional strategic abilities and were considered to be military geniuses. Both used the top military advancements of their time, with Hannibal using war elephants and Patton favouring the military innovation of the tank. He led the first motorised assault against Pancho Villa. Patton was an innovator with other things as well, and he also learned fencing and reworked the army training program to emphasise thrusting attacks over slashing, and he designed the Model 1913 Cavalry Sabre and became a top instructor in sword fighting. Patton was known for his strict discipline, toughness, and self-sacrifice, but he was also prone to brash actions and mercurial temper. In early August 1943, Patton was reprimanded by Supreme Commander Eisenhower for slapping and berating two U.S. soldiers who were suffering from shell shock. Hannibal was also known to have a violent temper. After his defeat in the Second Punic War, Hannibal physically assaulted an arrogant politician who proposed a peace treaty, dragging him down from the podium. The Roman historian Livy reported that he combines the most reckless daring for undertaking risk with the most judicious calm when in danger, and that he was more wonderful when facing adversity than enjoying his successes. And that's a pretty good description of Patton as well. There is one thing in which Hannibal and Patton differed, Patton was notorious for his attention-seeking activities and for loving the limelight and at times even put his men at risk to claim attention. 
His men called him with reluctant admiration Old Blood and Guts, adding it was his guts and their blood. He first speculated about reincarnation in a letter home to his mother in World War I, where he was a young tank officer in France. He wrote, I wonder if I could have been here before, as I drive up the Roman road. The theatre seems familiar. Perhaps I headed a legion up that same white road. I passed a chateau in ruins, which I possibly helped Escalade in the Middle Ages. Later, during the war, in Langue, France, a place he stated he'd never visited before, he declined the offer of a liaison officer to show him around. Langue is also the site of an ancient Roman military camp, and Patton had a feeling of familiarity about the site. He told the astonished young man that he already knew the area well. As he led the way through the town, Patton was able to point out the sites of the ancient Roman temples and the amphitheatre, the drill ground and the forum. He was even able to show the spot where Julius Caesar had made his camp. He told his nephew later that it was as if someone was whispering the directions in his ear. Patton died on the 21st of December 1945, after sustaining injuries in an automobile accident on the 9th, while commanding the 15th Army in their occupation of Germany. He's buried with the soldiers who died in the Battle of the Bulge in Ham, Luxembourg. I hope you enjoyed rejoining Jeff to hear about his memories of his other lives. To enter the competition, to win a signed copy of his original book, you can enter by providing a screenshot of proof of purchase and either emailing it to me at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or private messaging me through my Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited page in Facebook. For safety's sake, remember to blank out any banking details and addresses that might appear on your proof of purchase and never post any of your personal contact information online where anyone can see it. I will do an announcement on the podcast and the Past Life Revisited page to announce the winner, and I will contact the listener personally. So don't listen if anybody else contacts you, it will be me contacting you. The competition will run until the 30th of July, so make sure you have your purchase before then to be eligible. Good luck, I can't wait to congratulate the winner. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation, or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I would love to hear about them, and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. If you'd like to support me, I'd be honoured if you would become a Patreon supporter. You can find me on Patreon under reincarnation plr i don't do extra content at the moment but it is coming but your support helps me to keep pumping out content faster and lets me keep on doing what you love hearing we'll be back again soon with another episode but until then remember you are unique and your life has a purpose